Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we, um, we do thank you for your grace, for the forgiveness of sins that allows us to enter into your presence as your word tells us with boldness and with confidence, uh, knowing that we will receive mercy and grace uh, to help in our time of need. Uh, there are uh, our fellow citizens, Lord God, uh, south of us in Florida and along the, the Carolina coast uh, who are in need, uh, Father, of physical assistance, of protection. We, we pray for the victims of uh, Hurricane Ian, those who have lost property, those who, who have lost perhaps loved ones as well. We pray for restoration and renewal there. We pray for the safety of those who are helping in the recovery effort, restoring power <clears throat> and water and those who are involved perhaps even in rescuing those still uh, in need of uh, shelter and food and water. We thank you as well, Lord God, for your continued uh, mercy toward us in giving us homes in which to live, uh, jobs, O oh Lord God, health, uh, family, friendships, things, Lord God, that uh, we easily take for granted and can easily overlook uh, among the list of the many blessings that you have blessed us with in Christ. Uh, we thank you for our Savior uh, who speaks to us now uh, from your word. We pray for the continued assistance and help of your Holy Spirit in restoring to health those uh, among our members who are still suffering either from the effects of COVID or some other illness. Uh, those also, Lord God, who may be um, burdened by anxiety and fear. Uh, we live, Father, we are reminded in a world that is beyond our control. And it's easy, Father, to give into uh, fear, into panic, into anxiety. Um, but we know that uh, you are a God who is sovereign. And so we trust in your control. We trust in your ability to help us navigate uh, these uncharted waters with trust and hope, uh, in not only in the reward that is to come, but in what is given to us already uh, through the work of Christ and the descent of your Spirit. Father, open our hearts now uh, to hear and to receive your word, and then with the help of your Spirit also now to practice it, that we may in all things uh, give glory and honor to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, <clears throat> that others then may see that, and glorify our God and Father. Uh, this we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank Colleen for reading our text this morning from 1 Peter. And consider this uh, message, if you will, sort of a prequel or a pre-introduction to the upcoming uh, series um, of, that we'll start in discipleship groups on life in the family of God. So this is sort of a, a kickoff to the kickoff, if you will, of that. Um, I, and I had these, these verses in mind uh, to preach a couple of weeks ago, but obviously circumstances intervened. And I wanted these verses read for a very specific reason. Uh, and I alluded to it a little bit in my prayer. That over the, the past 50 years uh, or so, and maybe it's intensified more recently with polls that have come out and things like that, there have been many Christian leaders who have gone on record by saying that uh, we're living in what is a post-Christian culture, one in which both the importance 
and the language of the church and Christianity play an ever-decreasing role in our society. Others have gone even farther than that to say that we live in a post-Christendom culture, meaning that we can no longer assume that the vocabulary we use to define our values and to define our morality comes from the Bible. You may have experienced this in maybe a conversation with a coworker or a family member. They have very little knowledge about what the Bible says on these things. If they have any knowledge of the Bible of all, they may have heard of Jesus, they may have heard of the church, but beyond that, there isn't this vocabulary that we used to agree on only a short time ago. And certainly there are polls that have come out. I think the Pew Research Center came out with a poll. I think Gallup and, and uh, others that perhaps by the year 2050, 2060, uh, Christians may s- slip into the minority um, of, uh, of our nation. And so the, the, the outlook in that respect isn't that good. Despite this trend, however, there are some who see an opportunity, who see hope in the midst of all of this. Uh, one uh, such person is uh, uh, Timothy Keller, who is a now retired uh, pastor of Redeemer Community uh, Presbyterian Church. And in an article that appeared recently on the Gospel and Life uh, website, uh, Keller writes this. He says, The church has been given divine power to radiate the infinite glory and goodness of God in our lives and relationships. It has the capacity to be a new humanity, a community of surpassing beauty, under the leadership of Christ's Spirit. Churches have the ability to make their surrounding communities far better places to live so that many are drawn to God's beautiful glory. Now that same sentiment is is echoed and shared by uh, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in a book they wrote several years ago called Everyday Church. Like Keller, they believe, and I quote, our marginal status is an opportunity to rediscover the missionary call of the people of God. In other words, being treated as exiles, being pushed as we are to the margins of society, being, uh, if you will, shoved out of the public square, uh, rather than cause for concern, which it is, but is also a cause for optimism and hope because it allows us then to rediscover what God has called us to be in the world, which is salt and light, which is to be the church. We are to rediscover what Jesus means when he says at the end of Matthew's gospel, go into all nations, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them everything I have commanded to you. So what can be observed from one side as a negative thing Really, when you look at it from the standpoint of the early church, which was, if by comparison, a flea on the backside of an elephant, we as a church have always been at our best when we are in the minority. And when you combine Jesus' command there in the Great Commission with uh, what Ch- uh, Chester and Timis look at in the majority of the New Testament letters, um, and I, there we go. Uh, Really, the New Testament is a collection of missionary documents written for missionary situations. So despite being exiled to the margins of society, the church, in Keller's words, can still radiate the infinite glory and goodness of God in our lives and relationships, because that's what the early church did. It's why they were called Christians. 
uh, early in uh, the, the book of Acts because they noted how, the, the culture around noted how strongly they loved one another and cared for others as well. First Peter is all about learning what it means to be the church from the margins. I chose uh, the passages uh, this morning because they focus on what uh, Chester and Timis referred to as everyday church and everyday mission. Everyday church refers to keeping the gospel at the center of everything that we do. And then everyday church leads to everyday mission because by keeping the gospel at the center of everything we do, we can indeed make our communities far better places to live so that many are drawn to God's beautiful glory. In other words, these, these days, these times, give us a chance to shine more brightly with the light of the gospel, that we can offer hope in the midst of a, the ever-deepening and sinking stock market. We can offer hope when prices are on the rise and people can't afford basic necessities. We can demonstrate how to live with hope and faith in the midst of that by sharing what we have, not only materially, but also, and more importantly, from the biblical standpoint here, spiritually, by sharing with them who Jesus is. So everyday mission, it really is all about loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's being a faithful spouse or a loving parent. It's, it's being a loyal and supportive friend or classmate, a reliable worker, a fair and balanced manager or boss. Everyday mission is simply practicing what Jesus preaches. It's embracing our status as exiles, rediscovering our missionary call as the church. It's about finding ways of injecting the gospel into our culture like a vaccine, in which a culture in which both the language and importance of the church and Christianity play an ever-decreasing role in the lives of the people in it. So it's, it's a matter of, of living out what we say we believe in. And listen, I watch the news just as, just as much as you probably do. And we're human. It's natural to get worried, to be fearful, uh, to not know what's going to happen. But we trust in a God who controls all things. We're still called to be the church in the midst of all of that. It means simply living with the awareness that we are called by God to live as resident aliens wherever he sends us. And the reason I say that we are called to be the church is because in the words of uh, Eugene Peterson, the church is not something that we do. The church is what God does. and We participate in it. God created the church so that we can participate in its life and its mission, so that we can radiate with the truth of what and who Jesus is, so that others will be drawn to the beautiful glory of God. We are to radiate with hope. We are to radiate with grace. We are to radiate with kindness. We are to radiate with courage. Not because any of that resides within us, but we draw that from the scriptures themselves. We draw that from the Spirit of God. We draw that through a vibrant prayer life in which we spend time in God's Word and spend time in God's presence so that our whole perspective is reoriented. There's enough going on outside 
that can distract us and deter us and defeat us and discourage us. But when we turn our attention, like the old hymn says, when we turn our eyes toward Jesus, then we begin to see things through the lens and filter of the scriptures, and we begin to breathe more normally, we begin to see things more clearly, we begin to understand that though there are things beyond our control, we are serving and trusting a God who has all things in control. Being the church from the margins simply means accepting our status as exiles as an opportunity to rediscover what it means to fulfill the Great Commission, that missionary call to go and make disciples, and baptizing, teaching them everything that Jesus commanded us. So if you're looking for a roadmap of where we're going when we get into the, the text uh, more formally, so the, the big idea would be simply that you know, being the church from the margins, to be the church from the margins means putting the gospel at the center of everything we do of everything we think, of how we act, of how we live, and that we are exiles by God's sovereign choice, and that we are exiles who must practice what Jesus preaches. So let's, let's dig in and, and, and see what Peter says here. So we're exiles by God's sovereign choice. That's the intent uh, of uh, Peter's introduction there in verses 1 and 2. It's why then he ends in verse 3 by saying, grace and peace be multiplied to you because he knows he is an exile himself. He is a resident alien himself. He lives in the midst of a, a pre-Christian, pre-Christendom culture, as do they. And so in the midst of reminding them of their calling, he also encourages them to receive the grace and mercy that they have already experienced, and he wants them to experience it even more. So Peter's audience is a mix of Jews and Gentiles. They have been scattered to these various places throughout what is now uh, Turkey, the, the, the country of Turkey, in that area of the, the east. He is writing to a group of people who are likely from the lower classes, what today we would call the working poor. These are minimum wage earners to whom he is writing. They have been driven from their homeland. Some perhaps in the, in the persecution that started uh, after Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 7. Uh, some may be uh, residents in the particular areas where they have lived and have begun to notice that as they deepen their faith in Christ, as they have come to believe in Jesus, they begin to notice a disconnect between themselves and the surrounding culture. That as they begin to think in new and different ways, they begin to realize that the ways that they were brought up the ways that they were taught to think about life and the gods and culture is different. And they feel that sense and degree of discomfort. Maybe you feel that way too when you talk with your family members who aren't believers in Christ or co-workers. And you begin to engage in conversation. It becomes very, very clear that how they see the world and how you see the world is far different because you're seeing it through the lens of Scripture and they're seeing it through the lens of something else. Peter addresses his readers as those who are, as he says, elect exiles of the dispersion. And these areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, these are likely stops, if you will, on a postal route. And this letter that he has written is going to be circulated among these people. But it's interesting the way that he addresses them. Elect exiles of the dispersion. 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. That's an introduction that is, as we read it today, that's an introduction that is meant to provide us with comfort and assurance. The comfort of his introduction comes from the fact that he is encouraging us that despite our status as elect exiles, that is also our God-given identity. That our status as elect exiles is a result of the Trinitarian work of God. Did you catch that as he writes? It's according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling in His blood. Now, were this another sermon, we would dig more deeply into that. But that's for another time. Simply to say this, that there, uh, unlike Israel, who was dispersed from their homeland because of their disobedience, these believers have been dispersed, they have been scattered into the world according to the will of God, according to his foreknowledge, so that they may feel uncomfortable where they are, but that discomfort should not arise from the fact that they have somehow stepped outside of God's will, but are in the very center of his will, because it is according to his foreknowledge they are where they are, and that they have been set apart where they are, by the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. They are forgiven. So they are are scattered as elect exiles, not because of sin in their lives, but because they have in fact come to faith in Christ. And God, if you will, has scattered them. God the Father has scattered them to the farthest parts of the earth so that God the Holy Spirit can empower them to fulfill the prophecy that was made by God the Son. Because in Acts 1.8, Jesus said this to his apostles, you will receive the Holy Spirit when, uh, you will receive power rather when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. They, Peter's audience, are in the farthest parts of the earth. New Jersey may not be the farthest parts of the earth, but it's a long way from Jerusalem. (laughs) It's where we have been placed is according to a plan. We're not where we are by any accident or simple coincidence, but by a divine appointment. That's a word of comfort. Because the job that you have, the family that you were born into, the school that you are attending, yeah, you may have chosen that, but that was chosen for you already by a God who has your best interests in mind. That's a comfort. That's what it means to trust in his sovereign election and his sovereign choice. That we're his. And he sends us where he knows He can equip us to do his will, both for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of God, as well as for our own joy in gaining satisfaction from serving him, inviting others to join us on this journey through this present darkness toward our eternal home. That's a comfort. It's 
It's also a word of assurance because Peter reminds us that as elect exiles, we are, in the words of one scholar, heirs of the divine privileges bestowed out of divine love. That's the part that's not included in our text, but you can see that in verses um, 4 through 7, where Peter talks about our inheritance being kept for us. It doesn't fade, it doesn't spoil, it doesn't perish. That we are protected by God through faith. And so there is this reminder that though we are dispersed, though we are poor, if you will, in the eyes of the world, yet we are rich. And you can see, if, if you hear more closely what Peter is saying, you can find in this a definite parallel in terms of how Jesus enters the world as an exile. Leaves the safety, the comfort, the glory of his heavenly throne. Becomes poor that we might inherit the riches of his kingdom. And so there is this reminder that we have been joined, we have been attached to Christ by virtue of a Trinitarian work of God, all for the purpose of finding our deepest satisfaction in Christ and our greatest joy in sharing that satisfaction with others, that they may join us in worshiping him, and so that at the end of time, not only may their joy, but our joy might be increased because we have done exactly as God has commissioned us to do, which is to bring him glory, to live for him, to declare his praises. I like how uh, in his uh, commentary on this uh, text, uh, Ed Clowney, uh, who was a former uh, professor years ago at Gordon-Conwell, um, writes this about us defining, if you will, what Peter says here. Since they are citizens of heaven and have another country to which they are going, they are strangers, transients in the world in which they live. They are the dispersion. They are aliens. They carry another passport. They are on pilgrimage to the city of God. So the point is, if you feel uncomfortable at certain times because of your faith has sort of made a separation between you and your family or your co-workers or your classmates, that's purposeful. That's an indication that your passport, your true home, is not here. When we lived in Canada, uh, we first went through the process of becoming visitors. We got a visitor's visa, and then we became resident aliens, permanent residents. Uh, there and then eventually I, I took out citizenship. But it was interesting, those of you who have lived in other countries know this. This is my limited experience living in Canada, even though it's just across the border. There was a different mindset there. And at the same time, we were always aware as a family that we were Americans, that we thought as Americans, and that the way we thought as Americans was different than the way Canadians thought. And that, that sense of discomfort can sometimes creep in where you, because of our faith. We look at things differently as Christians, or we should. Regardless of what we think politically or what we think in terms of our sociology or even psychology, there is a sense in which we see things, hear things, interpret things differently as believers, and we speak a different language. That's why it's, it's so hard at this start when you become a believer to kind of get into the flow of things because it's like learning a foreign language. It's like thinking in a different way. It is thinking in a different way. 
Bible historians will tell us that the dispersion that Peter refers to here was a common term that was used to describe what happened to Israel when they were removed from their homeland after the Babylonians invaded uh, Judah and then they deported everyone into Babylon. That was back in 586, 587 BC. And then over time, the dispersion came to be a term that referred to Jews that were scattered throughout the Gentile world. Jesus is, is, uh, makes reference to this, or it's referred to in John 7.35, when Jesus talks about preaching the gospel to others not you know, in the immediate vicinity, and the Jews say, well, is he going to go speak to the Jews in the dispersion, meaning those who are scattered? But the thing about Peter's letter is, he's not writing to Jews only. He's including these Gentiles, these non-Jews, as those who are elect among the dispersion. That whereas... Israel would have the the claim, if you will, from the Old Testament of being the chosen people of God in the the New Testament. Now the church, which includes Jew and Gentile, they, we are the chosen. We are those included in the dispersion. That like Israel, who left Egypt uh, after Moses had helped to deliver them, as, we are headed, as they were headed for the promised land, we too are on exodus. We are journeying through this world. We are those whom God has called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's readers, and some of you may be living very far from where you were born. Maybe some of you not. But if you have a sense of homesickness, then you understand what Peter is trying to convey to his readers. You may have been scattered far from your home, far from everything that's familiar. Think about those folks in Florida and perhaps even in the Carolinas who have been displaced. Although temporarily, they are displaced. They can't wait to get back. Despite the devastation, despite what they have lost, they can't wait to get back there because that's where they live. That's where they grew up. That's where they have made their home. We are looking for a home whose builder, whose architect is God. We, we see it only by faith, but we know that because of the discomfort we feel, because of the disconnect that we feel with our own culture, that there is something not right about this present existence, and we long for something that is more permanent, more real, more peaceful, more sustainable. As uh, Ed Clowney Um, says again, he says, they are the dispersion because they are the people of God scattered in the world. Once they were without God and without hope in the world, following the empty way of life handed down by their fathers. But now they are returned to the shepherd and overseers of their souls. So in the midst of your displacement, in the midst of our sense of being discomfortable, uncomfortable with our present existence, know, says Peter, that we are being led to this life by the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. We are not alone on this journey. We are not left to ourselves. We are not forsaken. We are not abandoned. We have been forsaken and abandoned perhaps by the world, but not by the God who calls us out of that world to follow him through this world into our eternal home. Now, compared to Peter's original audience, we are light years ahead of them. We are better educated, 
We have better jobs. We have more wealth, infinitely more wealth. We have status. We have status because at least we can vote. We can run for public office. The only thing that we really have in common with Peter's readers is our faith in Christ. And that's what makes us exiles, or at least it should. Because the moment that we confess faith in Christ, we become citizens of another country. We become citizens of the kingdom of God. And that's, <laughs> I think that's part of the greatest challenge, especially for us as Americans. Because there's been such an overlap, such a, an intertwining of, of Christian identity and patriotism that we just, it's hard sometimes to separate the two, to kind of stand apart from what we are as Americans to what we are as Christians. And sometimes we put, we put them on the same level, but they're not. I know that, that sounds perhaps unpatriotic, but it's biblical. And realize that's the very reason why Christians in the early church were persecuted. Because when they went to pay their taxes at the temple, after you paid your taxes, you took a pinch of incense, you threw it into the fire, and you said, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do. You didn't have to mean it in your heart. You could lie. You could just do it. Just get it over with. But they couldn't do it. Because they knew, they knew Jesus is Lord. Caesar is nothing. And because they believed in one God, in three persons, rather than many gods, early Christians were considered atheists. How could you believe just in one? There are many. And so when we look at our life as Americans, it's very difficult to sort of separate that. Because we, we understand that we, we need to be good citizens. We need to engage in, in social things. We need to engage in political things and economic things. We need to fight for justice and you know, all of that. But not necessarily the American way. We fight for the biblical way. We fight for the truth. And sometimes the truth will put us at odds with our culture. The moment we confess faith in Christ, we become sojourners. Look, you know, my birth certificate, it tells me the city, the state, and the country where I was born. But the moment I became born again, I was promised and given a new home, just as you. We are looking for our true homeland. Read through Hebrews 11 and the, the great hall of fame of faith and how the writer there describes Abram and others who are looking for a better country, one whose builder and architect is God. That's our status. We are elect exiles. And... We are the church. As such, we are, as Jesus says, we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Our mission, our mission is to be the church from the margins. We have been given divine power to be salt and light. We have been given power to radiate 
the infinite glory and goodness of God in our lives, in our relationships. We have been given the power to love our enemies, to love our neighbors as ourselves, the power to bless those who persecute us, to bless them and not curse them. We have been given the power to keep the gospel at the center of everything that we do. And we are exiles by God's sovereign choice. And we are exiles who must also practice what Jesus preaches. And that's the, the second chunk of, of verses, particularly uh, verses uh, 13 through 16 of, of chapter 1. You know, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, before we dive in, just take a moment to consider who it is writing this. Peter. Particularly in light of the line, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I think if Peter is anything, he is a passionate man. You see that in the Gospels. You see that in the way that he rushes to defend Jesus, where he rushes to say, all others may flee from you, but I will not. He pulls out a sword, cuts off the ear of, of the servant. He's a passionate guy. But he also realizes that there's a certain ignorance to passion if it is not controlled, if it is not guided by the Spirit. When I think of that word sober-minded, I think of, um, <clears throat> it's a while yet before it's run, but I think of watching um, uh, the Kentucky Derby. And one of my favorite, some of you are not old enough to remember this, but you can, follow, you can watch it on YouTube. Go on YouTube and, and just type in Secretariat, 1973 uh, Belmont Stakes. He won that race, Secretariat did, by 31 lengths, which is unheard of. Still a record. He was a big horse, controlled by a small jockey with a small bit in his mouth. Being sober-minded is like that racehorse, controlled by a bit, running under control using every ounce of his muscles and strength and heart and desire toward the goal, toward the finish line. Being sober-minded is being that kind of follower of Christ. Living a holy life, because that's Peter's goal, his whole purpose in writing this letter. is to say, look, the world around you is chaotic. It's out of control. Some of us are afraid to go into the city, to get on the subway. Not only in nighttime, but in the broad daylight. You walk into a convenience store and it may be mobbed by people who will simply rob everything there. We have known people who have been assaulted simply because they look different. And yet Peter says in the midst of that, live a holy life. Be sober-minded. Prepare your mind for action. Sober-minded people glue their hope 
to the confident expectation that we will, number one, escape the judgment of God by trusting in the atoning sacrifice of Christ for our sins, by setting our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to us, grace that we have already experienced by virtue of being born again, but a grace that we will know in in ever-increasing fullness. We'll never fully comprehend or understand the grace that God has lavished upon us, but we will spend eternity swimming in that ocean. We will spend eternity drinking from that fountain, feasting on that. Peter knows that the darkness will always push against the light. But the alternative, he says, is neither to fear the darkness nor to embrace it, but to resolve to rediscover what it means to declare the praises of him who has drawn us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we must be what Jesus says we are. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city located on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not put a, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. Let your light shine before people so they can see your good deeds and not give honor to you but to give honor to your Father in heaven. What Peter is saying is, <laughs> don't play it safe. We live in a culture that is not only ever decreasing in its willingness to accept Christianity, but out and out hostile to it. You read the news, post Dobbs, pro-lifers have a target on them. It's a risk at work or in your neighborhood to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Bible. I follow him. That puts you at risk in certain situations. Peter says, take it. Because you don't light a lamp and hide it under a bushel. You put it out for everyone to see. You let it shine. Be wise, be shrewd as serpents, says Jesus, but be as innocent as doves. Sober-minded people find ways to practice what Jesus preaches, and they do that by fixing their hope on Jesus' promise that he makes in 5.16 of Matthew. So people will see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. It's what Keller means when he talks about drawing people to the beautiful glory of God, That the way we live, the way we speak, the way we act is designed to draw people toward that glory, toward that beauty, that we can make our communities far better places to live. Hope is at the center of that. Hope is at the center of the gospel. So let me give you a principle. I don't think it's unique to me. I probably picked it up somewhere. Preachers do this all the time. What you hope in is what you work for. What you hope in is what you work for. What are you hoping in? Because hope, when you come right down to it, hope is the engine that drives our faith and our love. You take away hope, leaving you only with faith and love, as powerful as they are, faith and love without hope is is a, a car without an engine. It's a night without a sunrise. 
It's a body without a heart. Hope tells us we are made for another world. You want to know why you aren't satisfied by the things this world has to offer? It's because you're made for another world. It's why the, 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 the letters, even Jesus' words, are filled with warnings not to engage, not to become drawn away by the fleeting pleasures of this life. What is 70 or 80 years or more compared to an eternity spent in the presence of God? Fix your hope on what awaits while experiencing the benefits of that hope even now by living as the church, by being in community as a church, by practicing the very things that Jesus says are necessary for life and godliness. Hope is God's gift to his elect exiles who are living far from home. It's the lighthouse that guides us safely into the harbor. It shows us where the rocks are. The rocks that would sink our faith and drown our love. It's what motivates us to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Beautiful is the word there in 1 Peter 2.11. Hope is what reminds us that our marginal status is an opportunity to rediscover the missionary call of the church. It's what gives us the power to be the church. It's trusting the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to make our surrounding communities far better places to live Hope inspires us to practice what Jesus preaches so that many will be drawn to the beautiful glory of God. What you hope in is what you work for. What are you working for? Because what you're working for reveals what you're hoping in. I understand. I mean, I'm, I'm, at, I'm an old guy. I'm at the end of my life in some ways. Some of you are just starting. You're building a career. You're building a life. You're building a marriage. You're building a business. What are you hoping for? Let what you're hoping for be informed by what you're hoping in. Who are you hoping in? Who is the source? Who is the ground of your hope? Let it not be status. Let it not be prestige. Let it not be power. As helpful as those things may be, they can be lost in a moment to a hurricane. They can be lost in a moment by a bad decision. They can be lost in a moment through a misspoken word. But if your hope is in Christ, it allows you to be salt and light that others may be drawn to the beautiful glory of God that you're radiating. A few years ago, John Piper wrote an article titled, How Exiles Serve the City. It was based on Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7. Jeremiah 29, a famous chapter where he writes a letter to the exiles who have been taken into captivity in Babylon. And the heart of Jeremiah's letter in verses 5 to 7 is this. What are they supposed to do? They have been removed from their homeland. You've been taken from New Jersey and you have been placed in the Yukon. You know where the Yukon is? It's way up in Canada. It's like way up there. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. What do you do? You build houses, and you live in them. You plant gardens, 
and you eat their produce. You take wives, you have sons and daughters, you take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. You multiply there and do not decrease. You seek the welfare of the city I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's what Jeremiah says. That's what the Lord says to the prophet. And this is what Piper says in analysis of that. What then shall we do? We should do the ordinary things that need to be done. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens. This does not contaminate you if you do it all for the real king, not just for eye service as people pleasers. You seek the welfare of the city where God has sent you. Think of yourself as sent here by God because you are. Ask for great and good things to happen for the city because in the welfare of the city, his people find welfare. This does not mean we give up our exile orientation. In fact, we will do the most good for this world by keeping a steadfast freedom from its beguiling attractions. We will serve our city best by getting our values from the city which is to come. We will do our city most good by calling as many of its citizens as we can to be citizens of the Jerusalem above. So let's live so that the natives will want to meet our king. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Father, you have not promised us an easy life, but you have promised us a blessed life. You have promised us joy in the midst of suffering. You have promised us hardship that leads to a greater reward than this world can ever provide. You promise us grace and mercy. You promise us the assistance of your Holy Spirit. You have given us the church, our brothers and sisters, in whom we can trust and confide and find ourselves held accountable as well as to be encouraged to pursue you with greater faithfulness. You have placed us in communities, Lord God, so that we may radiate with the glory of Christ and draw people to the beauty of your glory. We have been sent, scattered, and dispersed into the world so that the citizens of this world might become citizens of your kingdom, that they might be attracted, not only attracted to our great king, but become worshipers of him as well. Let us be worshipers. Let us be those who follow Christ. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.